Amen. Why don't we go ahead and open up the word here. I'm going to turn to Psalm 27. So Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So we have examined uh, actually 24 different attributes of God over the last several months. Uh, This morning I would like to continue with our meditations on the attributes of God by considering the beauty of the Lord. Uh, These studies have been very helpful for me uh, in my Christian life for various reasons. Uh, Number one, seeking to know God, what what does that do when when you seek God, what does that do? Well, it takes your eyes off yourself, right? And it turns it to God. You, you, you remove your eyes and your focus off of what's going on with yourself and your own thoughts, and you turn it and you're seeking someone, and you're seeking God. And that's pleasing to the Lord. So we have there in Jeremiah 29, verse 13 and 14, it says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So seeking God is pleasing to God. And again, it turns our eyes off of ourselves. And actually what can happen is when you seek God with all of your heart, what happens? You can find God. 
which is really number two. We can find or know God more. It broadens our view of God when you seek the Lord and when you find the Lord. It's kind of like I, I think of, of, of God in some ways. Again, it, you know, our, our, all of our descriptions f- fall way short. But I think of it kind of like the Grand Canyon in some ways. Like where you can go to the Grand Canyon and you can spend some time viewing a section of the Grand Canyon and, and, and see the beauty of the Grand Canyon, the splendor and the majesty of it. But this is such a small area. What happens? Well, if you go down and seek it out a little bit more, you find more beauty. And even in that same particular area that you've already viewed, if you look a little bit further, you might find this crevice that is just beautiful and gorgeous, and it expands the beauty and majesty of it. And then even if you go out throughout a different part of the day with the sun shining on it in various ways, again, magnifying the beauty of God's creation. In the same way, when you seek God and seek to know God, in many ways it's just like that. You, you find God, you know God in part, but whenever you seek God more, more is revealed and you're like, oh, I understand this more. And, and, it, and it broadens your view of God. Why is that helpful? Well, it really lays a foundation for your faith. It corrects errors and it establishes more opportunities of faith. For instance, if you're going through a hard time, going through a trial, Whenever you've sought the Lord and you've learned more about God, who is God, what happens? You have this knowledge of God and you've experienced God in a special way that helps you and equips you moving forward to where then when you're going through a trial, you can look back and say, you know, God, you are good. I know that you're good. I've experienced that. I've seen that in in a more and real way. And so when you seek God and you experience him more and you know God more, you are actually more well-equipped during trials or whatever the future has for you. So regarding the study of God's attributes, I know I've mentioned this previously, but theologians typically divide them into two different categories. One is the incommunicable, and the other one is the communicable attributes. Uh, Those are kind of big words, but the incommunicable basically means that, so communicable, communicates, one is God does not communicate that to us in the sense that God does not share these particular attributes with us. So we have, for instance, God's eternality. Remember, God is eternal. God is outside of time. Do we share that? No, we don't. We, we exist within time. We were born at a specific time. We are living in a specific time, and we will die at a specific time. We cannot share this glorious attribute with God. God is eternal. And some of the other ones can also be, again, the self-existence and unchangeableness or even omnipresence. We are here at this very moment. We cannot be at other places at the same time. And the other one is, is the communicable, you know, the, the attributes that God does share, but obviously it's sharing in parts. Obviously, we cannot share in the fullness of his attributes. So we think of God's love, that God is love. Well, can humans love? Can we really truly love? Well, yes, we can love, but it's only in part. We cannot love as deep or as fully as God loves. 
But again, we can kind of share in these attributes. And some other ones are also uh, like mercy or even um, omniscience and omnipotence. I mean, we, we, aren't, we are not all-knowing, but we can share in knowledge, that God has, has given to us knowledge, and also God has given us dominion, right, over the earth. We can share in some of those things in part, but not in full. So, but even within these divisions, we can also think of uh, some of these attributes that define his being, like his invisibility, that God is invisible, or even his, his moral attributes, such as like his goodness, that God is moral, God is, is good. But then we also have ones that actually uh, fit more like with a summary of who is God. So we think of, for instance, God's glory, right? We can think of each of God's attributes as being absolutely glorious, and that God is also perfect. Well, I believe that the, this idea that the beauty of the Lord is kind of a summary attribute of all of, of, all of his attributes. So what is the beauty of the Lord? Uh, Grudem says that the, the beauty, that God's beauty is that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. Another way of saying this is that God has everything desirable, everything beautiful. So what is beautiful? What is really desirable, like really, truly desirable? God has all qualities of attractiveness, of what's desirable, of all things good. Therefore, God is beautiful. Everything that flows from God is delightful. Everything. So not one thing that comes from God is really not truly desirable. If we can step back and see God's purpose. Again, sometimes we struggle because we can only see kind of horizontal. We see what, you know, how we feel and what's right in front of us. But if we could step back and see God's picture see what God is doing and how God is moving, we could just say, Lord, this is good. God does all things good, right, towards us, towards those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So God does all things good. Therefore, God is beautiful. And the other part that is beautiful in this is that we think of, again, of all of these attributes that God is, is not just a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment, a God of wrath, but he's also a God of mercy and a God of grace, and he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. He's, he's reigning supreme right now. And we think of all of these attributes and who is God, and we look at ourselves, and we see, like, if you kind of look at, at your own attributes, they kind of ebb and flow, and, and one might be above the other. But with God, there is perfect unity in his attributes. It's not that, it's, that if God cannot be the God of love and the God of wrath at the same time, he is equally both, equally and perfectly. And so it's summing up of all who God is. And if you have a full picture of who God is, how he acts, what is he like, 
all that you can say is God is beautiful. So let's examine a few of these attributes of God to, to highlight his beauty. I was thinking of, of his humility. Several weeks ago, I, I, I spoke on, just kind of in our time of sh- uh, sharing and singing, the humility of God. And I read Psalm 113.6, where it says, God, so it says, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth. So is that not beautiful? God is a God who humble, is humble. He humbles himself to behold or to see creatures in heaven and on earth. Well, how frequently does he do that? All the time. All creation is before him. Even the cherubim that are at his right hand right now, singing praises to him, it's humbling to God to even view or to see those creatures by whom the, the, the mere voice of them shakes the earth. But yet God lowers himself to even see them, and even more so, God lowers himself to see us. And even what, is, what did Christ do? He humbled himself to the point of death. What did Christ say about himself? I am humble in heart. And we think about the Holy Spirit. What is his job? What does he do? He abides within us. Our, we are humble creatures of God. So we can think about the humility of God. And again, is this not delightful? That God is not boastful or arrogant. 1 Peter 3.4 says, But let your adorning, so speaking of, of women, but it says, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What does God see as beautiful? Well, God says here, a gentle and quiet spirit. This idea of humility is beautiful in God's eyes. And what does he say again? It is very precious in the eyes of God to have this gentle and quiet spirit. Why? Again, it's not just simply because God says this is what you should do, but it's because of this is who God is. And that's a reflection of who God is. Therefore, it is beautiful. So that is, that is a humility is a communicable attribute. We can also think of one that God does not share with us is his unchangeableness. Again, we as creatures are always changing. As the flower fades, right? As the grass withers, so are we. We, we, we change daily. James 1, says, uh, 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The unchanging attribute of God is also beautiful. Does it not delight your heart to know that every word and every promise God made to you will not be changed? God has no shifting shadow. So again, if we think about all of the promises that God has given us, everything that he has said about himself uh, and, and things that he has given to us, it's a beautiful thing that God does not change. This changing nature is not beautiful. Right? That, that's a flaw. And God is not that way. 
Again, God is not a shifting shadow. We think, you know, all of us have been out in the field and, 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 and maybe like on a hot day uh, when the sun is out and, and bearing down and you see clouds coming across the sky. And when a cloud comes across, it gives you comfort, right? And so there, you, 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 can, you can find comfort and a relief from the heat. But then what happens? Well, it quickly goes away, right? And you're looking for the next cloud. See, this, un, this, this shifting shadow, the shadow that's always changing, it's here one moment, and, and, and then it's gone the next. God is not that way. God is unchanging. God does not change. If God was like a shifting shadow, again, he couldn't be trusted. A God that cannot be trusted is not beautiful because it is not a desired quality. God is beautiful because every aspect of what he is and what he does never changes. These are but just two examples that reflect the beauty of the Lord. But again, you can go on to other attributes, again, such as love and grace and mercy and justice and goodness. And you can, again, stop and meditate and think about each one and see the beauty of God. But I kind of want to flip this around just a little bit and, and uh, to highlight God's beauty a little bit more. And using uh, some of these attributes in unity, or the, using this attribute of beauty, actually, in unity with three other attributes, in particular, that, that God is eternal, that God is immutable or unchanging, and that God is transcendent. So let's think about God's beauty. Again, that God has all things desirable, that there is no flaw within God. God is eternal. That means if we could have our eyes on God from eternity past, from as far back as we could go, again, before time, and then even right now, and then go to the future, God is beautiful, has always been beautiful, and is currently beautiful, has all, again, everything that is delightful and pleasant, God has. God is not lacking in anything. But God doesn't change, again. And that's kind of in part with his eternality also. But that his beauty is not going to diminish. Again, we can think of some, some beautiful things, but what happens to them? They begin to fade away, right? But God's beauty will never change. God will always be beautiful. And God's beauty, again, is indescribable. It transcends above everything that we can even think, everything that we can even imagine. God is beautiful. We think, again, of the most glorious things, mountains that are beautiful or or whatever it may be, and, and we, can, we can stand in wonder and, and beauty of the sky and the stars. But God is far beyond that. Again, we can't measure the beauty of the Lord. If we could expand our hearts the size of the universe, we could fill it up at wonder and awe of the beauty of God, and we would fall short of the beauty of the Lord and comprehending the breadth and the depth the length of the beauty of God. We as mere humans can only scratch at the surface of how beautiful and desirable God is. So questions for you. A couple questions and then we'll look further here into the psalm. Can you see the difference between what the world defines as beauty and God's beauty? 
The world distorts beauty. Again, we live in a fallen world, and sin twists. The fallen world has twisted even the beauty of God. I think you know, several years ago, my family, we went out west, actually, to go see the Grand Canyon. And uh, north of uh, Arizona, you know, we were passing through some hills, some mountains, and, and they were beautiful in their own right. But people put windmills like all over the mountains. And it's just like, why? Why would you do that? Just really distorting the beauty of God, taking it away from. And, and even some things that aren't necessarily man-made, again, thinking again of the mountains, that's kind of what I think of, of, of beauty. Um, think of like the, even like the ash bore beetle, right? What happens there? You go up to this mountain to, to go see the beauty of the mountain, and you go up there, and what do you see? All these dead trees. This beauty that's just taken away. So this natural world is fading, and, and again, it, it twists the beauty of God. See, we need to have God as the standard of beauty. What is beautiful? What are you looking for? What is desirous? What, how should I define what is attractive? God must be your standard of beauty. I can't remember um, who said this, if I read it in a book or somebody told me. Uh, before I got married, uh, somebody mentioned that, that you need to have your wife as the standard of beauty amongst women, which is good. And that, that's right. Absolutely. Put her in front of everybody else. But she cannot alone be the standard of beauty, right? Because she could have flaws, and then everybody else you might think is that that's beautiful. Well, not necessarily, No. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's right. We need to have God as our standard of beauty to define, again, what is desirous? What should I be desiring? What should I be like? You know, what, what quality should I have? And again, as Peter mentioned, as I read previously, you know, having humility, having a gentle and quiet spirit, and that's not only just for women. Men also should be gentle and, and have a quiet spirit. It's something that's desirous because that, who, that is who God is. God is humble. And we need to strive to live like that. And, and, and again, having God as that standard to conform us. The second question is, how is God's beauty changing you? The purpose of theology or the study of God is not to increase our knowledge, but to increase our love and worship in Christ's likeness. As we grow in our knowledge of God, these qualities should be simultaneously growing. So what I mean is that, again, as we go, and, and yes, we need to seek the Lord. We need to find out who is this person, who is God. But it cannot be this mere knowledge. It cannot be this head knowledge of who is God, well, and, and you can spit off some theological terms, it needs to impact the heart. Is it increasing your love for God and for others? Is it increasing your worship of him, of, again, just standing at awe and worshiping the beauty of God? And is it conforming you to his image? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves. And yes, we do need to pursue theology. Yes, we do need to be grounded in these things. But again, holding it into the right perspective and again, letting our hearts to, to go and to worship the Lord. 
So let's, um, let's look at Psalm 27 now. And uh, particularly, again, thinking about this attribute of the beauty of God. And a lot of verses can stand on their own, but it is good, and, and, and it can really highlight when we think of the context, when we look at the context here. So here we have an example of how having a deeper understanding of God can change and help you in your trials. We're not exactly sure when this psalm was written, but some speculate that David wrote this when fleeing Absalom, his son. So let's look at this a little bit further here. So what's going on here in the context? Well, first, it's good to notice what's surrounding David here. So if you look at verse 2 and 3, When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. It's not exactly sure if this is past tense or present tense. But then later on in verse 12, he just says, For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. So it does appear that this is currently going on, that currently David has a host encamped against him and war rising up against him. So let's put ourselves in his shoes. What would you do? What would you think? What would you say? Could you say, along with David, my heart will not fear. The war rise up against me, I shall not be afraid. In spite of all of this, I shall be confident. But no, see, here in the midst, again, David is expressing his trust, his belief upon God. But what else does he do? He asks a question, doesn't he? He makes a request, and he only makes one request. He's not asking for safety, is he? He's not asking for the life, the life of his enemy or even success on the battlefield. But what is he requesting? I think what he's requesting here is just the presence of the Lord. So in the midst of war, in the midst of people surrounding him and these false, these adversaries you know, rising up against him and speaking lies against him, he just makes one request of God. That he, he wants to be in God's presence. The man of one pursuit is successful. So what are you pursuing? What is David pursuing here? David is not pursuing the benefits of God. David is pursuing the person of God. That is what our pursuit should be. This is what David is doing here. Again, he's not not looking and simply asking for success and, again, relief from this, from the benefits of God, but he's looking to the person of God in this. David also says there in Psalm 16, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. He acknowledges, yes, there are pleasures forever, but what? Your presence is fullness of joy. This is what David wants. I was also thinking also of another example and thinking of, uh, of Saul's grandson, actually, Mephibosheth. I don't know if you remember the story of Mephibosheth. Uh, this is, uh, so Jonathan, David, or Saul's son, uh, so Mephibosheth, it's hard to say, Mephibosheth, uh, is the, the grandson of Saul. 
and, and you remember what happened to him? He became crippled, right? And David wanted to bless the house of Jonathan, and he found Mephibosheth. And, and what did he do? He brought him into his presence, right? And, and dining with him in the presence of the king. And that's, that's a great example of Christ, isn't it? Of us. But, but what happened here? Again, in the story with Absalom, Mephibosheth stays behind. Then you know, Abs- uh, Absalom dies, and, and David comes back. And then Ziba, who is the, the servant of Mephibosheth, lies. Right? He lies to David uh, about Mephibosheth. And then, then uh, once David is restored, then David tells actually Mephibosheth and, and uh, Ziba about the, the property, that the, the inheritance, that you, you can split the land between the two. But what does Mephibosheth say? In 2 Samuel 19, he says, Let him that is Ziba even take it all, since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. What did Mephibosheth want? He didn't want the land. He wanted the king. He wanted to continue in the presence of the king. So what do we want? Do we want the land or do we want the king? Which one is better? The king. We we would rather much dwell and be in the presence and dine with the king rather than having the benefits, having the land. So what does David go on to do? Well, again, he asks, right? And, and who is he asking? He's asking the Lord, right? The one person that could actually help him. So he's going to the right person. And then he says, and this I shall seek. So he asks from the Lord, and he says, and that I shall seek. So he, he made this request, and, and David is saying, and I shall seek this. Holy desires can lead to right actions. He has a right desire to pursue God, to know God, but it also leads to action. Seeking God is action. It's not this stagnation. It's not sitting still. Again, you have the idea of ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. It's not this I ask once, or I sought once, or knocked on the door once. It's this idea, if I am going to pursue this thing. You know, we we all understand the the, the concept of hide and seek, right? What happens? Somebody hides, and the other person is seeking. And when you do that, you don't just look in one place. You look until what? Until you find the person. Seeking is action. You are actively seeking until you have found what you are looking for. David said, I want your presence, and I am going to seek that. I am going to pursue this. It's kind of similar to his, his there in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. O oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So you you kind of get a a picture of the heart of David, of hotly pursuing God as a deer would pants for water, like this desiring, like, I need water. I need this. I want this. This is how we should be with the Lord and seeking the Lord. So where does David ask, though? Again, so he says, "I, I want your presence. But he says, that I may dwell or abide in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. 
you know, again, we, we understand that it's not just the temple. You know, it's not this, this physical place. And I think David, you know, acknowledges this. And, and, and you can understand this. It's not this physical place that David is wanting. But again, he's wanting the presence of the Lord. But he, he does go somewhere. He, he's wanting to go to the temple. To the place where David can expect to see God or, or visit with God. To the special place of communion. You know, David knows and he, he has experienced these times in the temple of experiencing experiencing the Lord. And this is what he's desiring it. And he, again, it's not just this idea of going to the temple once, but he says that I may abide there all the days of my life. And it's like, surely, you know, each of us can ex- have experienced that. It's like you experience the Lord in part, and it's like you want that. And, and, and you, you want to maintain that, and you want to experience that nearness of the Lord all the days of your life, forever. But obviously, as humans, it fades. It goes away. But we can look forward to one day being able to spend all of our days in the presence of the Lord, with everything unhindered, with our flesh being gone, our bodies having a glorified body where we can praise God with a whole heart, and to abide in the, in the house of the Lord all of our days. We can look forward to that. And again, what does David express here? Lord, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And here's kind of the focal point here. For what? What does David expect to see? When he goes and he, and he, and he goes into experience the Lord, what does he expect to see? The beauty of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to be able to see with his own eyes or to be able to comprehend with the eyes of his heart the beauty of God. Again, God's beauty is having everything desirable, that everything that we can even think of or really even beyond that, that everything that God is, is desirous. So what David has expressed in this psalm, again, it it, it expresses, like he's seeing something. So David here is seeing something. He's saying, to behold the beauty of the Lord. What does David know about the beauty of the Lord? What has David experienced or what has David known about the person of God? Because again, he's, he's expressing something. He's saying that, God, you are beautiful. But what does David mean? Well, I thought it was interesting just kind of looking through this psalm. Um, actually, I saw uh, possibly 11 or more different things about God that David expressed just in this psalm here. So let's kind of go through here to kind of get a picture of what David is saying. So first off, at the very beginning, what does he say? The Lord is my light. That, that God, you are my light. You know, and, and obviously now with us having the whole word of God, we can say, you know, Jesus, you are the light of the world. And, and we, you know, you are my light. You know, in you, there's no darkness at all. There's nothing hidden in this holy light. But you also cast light so that we may see, that we may see who you are and to see the paths in front of us. And then also, Lord, you are my salvation. You are my source of salvation. So David, again, seeing clearly that, God, you are my Savior. And then also there, in, actually in, in, in verse 1, he continues to say, the Lord is the defense of my life. 
God, you are my defender. Let's think about that. If, if, you, are in, if you have a, a, an army encamped against you, this multitude encamped against you, desiring your life, David saw something. I, I shouldn't fear. Why? Because God is the defense of my life. Who can stand against God? By the mere thought or, or snap of the finger or, or whatever, just, just, just saying the word, and this army can be gone. Who would you rather have to be the defense of your life but God? God is a mighty warrior, and he is the defense of our lives. And David saw that clearly because, again, he says, Whom shall I fear? No one. I shall not fear anyone because God. I, I, I depend upon God. God is standing in between me and this army. I'm not afraid. We can also see there in verse 5, For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. So thinking of this idea that, that David is in trouble, and in some ways you might think of like being in this pit of, 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 of despair or, or this pit of danger, and what does God do? God redeems him. God comes down and lifts him up and lifts him up on a rock. God is his rescuer. We have in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. David sees the grace of the Lord, that, that God is the God of all grace. God is overflowing with grace, overflowing of giving people things that they do not deserve. God, be gracious to me because I know you are gracious. Otherwise, he wouldn't be asking this. In the same verse here, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. David knows that he's, he has the ear of God. God is a God who hears. He hears our cries. God hears the cry of the righteous, right? So David knows that when I call the Lord will hear my voice. Also in the next verse here, it says, When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. God not only hears, but he speaks. It says, when you said, seek my face. We don't know exactly how or when this happened, but God spoke to him in a, in a way telling David, seek my face. And we know, uh, you know, again, looking at the story of David, that God met with him on multiple occasions in speaking with him directly. God is a God who speaks. God is also our helper. Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Again, what is something that's desirous, something that is beautiful, is being a helper. Why? Because God is this way. God is a helper. Oh, God, my help, right? God is our help. God is our helper. So David sees this picture of God as being, you are my helper. I have no one else to turn to, but I can look to you for my help. And he also mentions again there in verse 9, says, do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Again, David brings this idea back up that, God, you are my God of salvation. 
In Psalm 149, 4, it says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his, in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. So think about that. Here we are as afflicted ones, as creatures, lost creatures, and even think of us as his enemies, and really afflicted because we've afflicted ourselves. But yet God, because of who he is, it says he will beautify his people. God is a God who saves. God redeems. And so again, this picture that David has here. And we also have here in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Where does he go to for wisdom? The God of all wisdom. God, he knows that God has wisdom. God is a God of wisdom. He has all knowledge. Teach me. He's looking to God to teach him. He's humbling himself and saying, You, Lord, teach me. So again, he has this idea of that, God, you are all wise. I may not understand everything. Lord, you teach me. And not only asking for God to teach him, but in that same verse he says that asking for his leading and lead me in a level path. Again, we have this idea of leading or shepherd, and we know that obviously David had this idea of shepherding and leading, leading us in a level or a smooth path. So God is our shepherd. God is our leader. And then finally, in verse 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. Again, so kind of finishing this up with this idea that David has, who is God? God, you are good. I, I would have despaired, actually. I would have despaired unless I had seen, unless I had believed, unless I had known about the goodness of the Lord. And not just simply that, that God is good, but what does he actually continue to say? I, and I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's almost like he's pointing ahead. So like the faithfulness of God. That Lord, right now, it's hard for me to see the goodness of the Lord. Again, I have this, this people encamped against me. I have people speaking lies against me. Lord, yet you are good. I, it may be hard for me to see this, but Lord, you are good. And I would have despaired unless I believed that yet you would yet show your goodness again in the, the land of the living. So again, let, let's sum all of this up here. So David has this understanding. And what is he wanting to do? Again, to, to, to dwell in the presence of the Lord, to behold his beauty. David is seeing all of these desirable attributes. David is seeing, again, this attractiveness of God. And he's expressing this in this psalm. Again, what more would you want in a God? Again, there's times when we may despair because we do not know God more. Or if we are blinded in unbelief. But again, that's why it's important for us to be seeking God, to know God more, and to be able to lay a foundation in our lives that when something does happen, when difficulties do arise, 
What do you go to? What do you lie down on? The foundation of who God is, that he is faithful and good. The last point here is what else does David say? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David not only wanted to see his beauty, but he wanted to meditate. He wanted to inquire further about the Lord. So this word meditate, it it, it can also be translated inquire or kind of like ask about. So it's not not this idea of just simply being um, satisfied with with the current understanding. He's wanting to grow in this, to meditate Again, to mull this over, to be thinking about, to grow in this idea that, God, you are beautiful and growing in the presence of the Lord. So we also, we need to meditate to be thinking about this. We need to be probing the person of God, to analyze, God, who are you? Asking God, show me, God. And we need to be those who are seeking Again, don't stop until you have found him. Again, we can look at that verse again in twenty-nine, uh, Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So what is, what is God saying here? You will seek me and find me. How? When? When you search for me, whenever you seek for me with all your heart. So again, we need to be focused and to be focusing on the person of God and seeking after him. And when we do that, what is, again, continuing out that verse, what does he say? I will be found by you. So that promise there that we have, if you seek the Lord with all of your heart, you will find him and you will not go away disappointed. You will not go away empty-handed. So in closing, God is altogether beautiful. So let's, let's not stop with our current understanding of God, but let's press in further. There's more, again, there's more there than what we currently understand. So as we again pursue God, as we begin to seek God again, it'll broaden our view of God and it will equip us for whatever is in store for us in the future. Why don't we go ahead and pray here. Father, again, we come, and Lord, it's, it's hard to explain how, how do we define the beauty of, of God? How do we express how desirable that you are? Uh, words can fail at, at describing how glorious and how beautiful that you are. Uh, but Lord, we, again, we can think about how, how throughout eternity we will be knowing you more and growing in our knowledge, uh, growing in our, our sight of how beautiful you are. So Lord, but, but pray that you would help us, Lord, to not just simply to stand still, not to grow stagnant in this, but that we would again, be like David or Mephibosheth and just desire the presence of the king, to desire to, to, to press in further, uh, to know you, to know you more.
So, Lord, again, we, we ask for help. Lord, again, we, we also confess, Lord, that our, our hearts are weak, that we are still in our flesh. Um, and, and at times it's hard to. Um, we, we desire to, but our flesh is weak, Lord. And so we ask for help. Lord, again, would you uh, give us more of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to reveal these things and, and to give us grace and to equip us uh, to, to, to press further, to not grow weak, uh, but that we, again, would run forward with endurance. And Lord, again, just with your Holy Spirit, that, that you would open our eyes further uh, to understand, uh, to be able to comprehend more of you. Lord, again, not for the, the, the mere purpose of knowledge that, that puffs up, but the purpose of the presence of God, the purpose of, of loving you and loving other people more and uh, to be able to worship you more, to be able just to, just to stop and just to be at awe and, and uh, just your glory and beauty and that we would be conformed by that. Lord, pray that you would help us to, to make you our standard of beauty that we would desire all things that are beautiful according to your scripture. And again, Lord, we, we lean on you in these things. Amen.